Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, a writer, and a martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Each episode of History on Fire takes a monstrous amount of time and effort to produce. Research alone easily takes up 200 plus hours per episode. And as much as I enjoy the work, none of this would be realistic or possible without the support of listeners like you, donating to the podcast, and also without the support of my sponsors. So if you find it intolerable, the notion of me giving thanks to sponsors whose products and services I enjoy and whose support makes this podcast possible, feel absolutely free to use the fast-forward button because there are a few folks I want to thank today. Let's start with BlueApron.com, which this episode is brought to you by BlueApron.com. BlueApron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. They deliver high-quality ingredients and recipes right to your door for affordable prices. So check them out and find out for yourself if you could benefit from their services. Lately, let's see what I've been eating lately from Bueprun. I had some glorious salmon deal burgers. Of course, I cannot pronounce the word salmon and everybody laughs at me, but it's a fish and it's pink inside. So you do the math, figure out which one, what I'm talking about. That was supremely good. Uh, lemongrass burgers and cabbage slow, amazing. We have, you know, honestly, pretty much every single recipe I've ever received from Blue Apron, even the ones that initially I'm like, huh, is this going to be good? I'm not so sure. Let's give it a shot. Every single time I've been happy with it. There hasn't been one dish that I haven't enjoyed tremendously. So one way to support History on Fire is to take them up on their offer to try three free meals with free shipping by going to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, that's blueapron.com forward slash on fire. This episode is also brought to you by Skillshare.com. Skillshare is an online learning community with over 15,000 classes in design, business, and much more. You can learn everything from logo design to social media marketing to street photography You have unlimited access to all of these for a low monthly price. Basically, you never have to pay per class. Uh, You pay a low monthly price and you have access to all of their classes. Uh, There's so much stuff. I I logged in. I recently received the login. I started going and exploring. There are classes in really just about everything you can think of. I'm pretty intrigued with the one about social media marketing. I want to take a look at some of their stuff. Um, I haven't... 
Let me ask uh, the glorious Savannah M, editor and producer of History on Fire. I know she has had a chance to play with it a little bit more. What have you? What has been your experience? I was looking at some of the design courses, mm-hmm. um, particularly the storybook, how to do storybooks. I just like the way the videos are organized and they're really, they're really well done, clean, and and it's really easy to browse through each of the categories. The website is really well put together. Beautiful. Awesome. I look forward to having a chance to play with it more myself. By the way, Skillshare is giving my listeners a month of unlimited access absolutely free. So go to www.skillshare.com forward slash history to redeem your free month. Again, that's skillshare.com forward slash history. Thank you also to Geek Nation Tours, which is a vacation company creating tours focusing on geek cultures, including conventions, movie locations, and more relevant to this podcast, to historical battlefields. This October, they will be time-traveling to feudal Japan and the battlefields of Sekigahara. Join them as they watch Kendo, Kyudo, Yaido, and sword-making demonstrations at the Seki Cutlery Festival. They're going to be visiting the most famous Japanese medieval castle, hike through spectacular natural landscapes, and of course visit the Sekigahara Reenactment Festival where you will see samurai walking the streets in full armor and battling in commemoration of the battle from 1600. Uh, The link to their tour is rather long, so I won't bother you trying to tell you verbally. I'll put it in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com so that if you are interested, and I think, honestly, just take a look, uh, it's good stuff. I really like it. I'm, I can't make it this October, but I know that they do this tour more than once. I would definitely love to make it at some point. Um, do, 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 do. What else do I want to tell you? Of course, the two cornerstones that have been essential to the development of History on Fire from the get-go, Onnit and Datsusara. Onnit has everything under one roof you can think of. It's just from supplements to workout gear to clothing to special foods on it as a whole variety of products i've tried by now so many of them and i'm still very far from having even come halfway to trying all of their stuff it's amazing quality uh one of the things i've enjoyed lately is this um they just put together this uh foam roller with other tools for basically self-massage so that if you are sore you can use them to dig in in ways that you wouldn't be able to do on your own so it's kind of like getting a deep tissue massage if you vaguely know what you're doing and you learn how to use these tools without having to pay the big bucks for it so that's the one on it product i've been quite excited lately and go check out onnit.com forward slash history for an automatic discount and Datsusara as I mentioned Datsusara has been my sponsor from the get-go I'm about to head out to Italy right now we're finishing recording and then I have one more day in Los Angeles before heading out to Italy and I know that on the trip will look like some assassination team because the Datsusara bags are awesome but they look very they have that tactical look they look like you are 
some kind of a Navy SEAL group going off on a mission. Um, I love all their bags, computer bags, backpacks, um, you name it. So go check them out at dsgear.com and you can use the code Daniele, my name, at checkout for a discount. If you didn't catch the above websites, the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. I want to keep this shorter. I'm already going long now, so for now I will shut up. And without further ado, let's go set history on fire. Okay, part three of this series about the conquest of Mexico is about to begin. Uh, Two things specific to the podcast that you should know before we get going. One is that a couple of months ago, I I released the special prequel episode to this series. That is not available on iTunes, Teacher, or any of the other formats through which History on Fire is distributed. I emailed this episode as a gift to anybody who had donated so far in 2017, but it's also available for sale at historyonfirepodcast.com. If I remember correctly, it's slightly less than two hours in length. Um, Pretty sure. I think it's over an hour and a half, less than two, somewhere around there. Price is not gonna put you in bankruptcy, I promise. It's fairly cheap. And it's an awesome tale that takes place about a hundred years before the present story of the Spanish invasion of Mexico. So if you'd like to check it out, just go get it at historyonfirepodcast.com. Something else instead for which you have to pay zero dollars is something that has been put together by my friend Daryl Cooper from the Martyr Made podcast. He'll be running a series of episodes parallel to this series. Daryl is a master podcaster. Um, His series about the genesis of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is amazing. It's just incredible, the the quality of work he has put together. And he has already released a couple of episodes, and by the time this is out, there's probably going to be three or four on themes related to the stuff that we discuss in this series. For example, he did one about cannibalism, he's going to do one about human sacrifice, all things that are very pertinent to Mexica culture. So, just wanted to let you know, um, I'll put a link to this as well in the episode notes, and now let's jump into our story. Welcome to part three in this ongoing series about the clash between the Spaniards and the Mexica Empire. There will be four parts to this series, so by the time you'll be done with this episode, you'll be 75% through the whole thing. So, unless you don't mind jumping into the middle of a story, probably is a good idea to start out with part one and two in this series. And while you are at it, if you want to, you can check out also a prequel, that's only available at uh, the website historyonfirepodcast.com. Um, it's not essential to understanding the story, but it's uh, it was a really fun story to research and narrate, and it takes place about 100 years before the arrival of the Spaniards, so it helps set the context. In any case, when we left off last time at the end of Part 2, after a few days of brutal fighting, Spaniards and Tlaxcalans had agreed to stop killing each other and decided to join forces instead. The Mexica Emperor Moctezuma 
was not too happy about it. He had been hoping that the Tlaxcalans would wipe out the Spaniards, since he himself didn't know how to handle them, and he was also hoping that the Tlaxcalans would be weakened enough by this fight so that he could come in and take them out. In other words, his hope was that these two people, both of whom he didn't like, you know, he didn't like the Spaniards, he didn't like the Tlaxcalans, he was hoping that they would just kill each other, but that's not the way it worked out. So, disturbed by the news of the Spanish victory and their subsequent alliance with the Tlaxcalans, Moctezuma tried to put on a good face by sending messengers congratulating Cortes for the victory over his enemies, and also trying to convince Cortes not to ally himself with what Moctezuma considered a traitorous Tlaxcalans. He said, you don't trust them, they are tricky people, all of that kind of stuff. Ignoring Moctezuma's advice, Cortes entered Tlaxcala on September 18, 1519, along, well, of course, along with the entire Spanish force, as well as their Totonac allies, who had been fighting side by side with them over the last few days. The Toctonacs, as it, I mean, I haven't really mentioned that much over this last period during the conflict with Tlaxcalans, but they have been incredibly helpful. Um, in the words of a Spaniard in this uh, expedition, had it not been for them, we should not have won. So clearly the alliance with the Totonacs had already paid dividends. The Spaniards could use the morale boost that took place now after getting a few days of R&R in Tlaxcala. Helping their morale was the fact that the noble lords of the city decide to hand them 300 slave girls, which the Spaniards always appreciated, plus they were also trying to set up some of the Spanish captains to marry the daughters of some of the nobility in town. Some of these daughters were handed to the Spanish captains so that they would marry and kind of cement an alliance between these two peoples. The hope of the Tlaxcalan lords was that the Spaniards would marry their daughters. Kind of didn't work out that way. The Spaniards ended up taking them more as concubines than actual full-fledged wives. But initially there's ambiguity about it, so they just say, okay, we'll baptize them, and then we will marry them, kind of marry them, whatever, something. And again, the line between real marriage and becoming a concubine wasn't entirely clear in the customs between the two people, so nobody seemed to take offense at this. For example, even the daughter, or at least one of the daughters of one of the key leaders in Tlaxcala, Chicotenga the Elder, was given to the captain Pedro de Alvarado and took on the name uh, Donia Luisa. Uh, in the months to come, not surprisingly, quite a few mestizo kids born from this union of native women and Spanish men were born. I said born about twice in that very short sentence, didn't I? In any case, ignore it. I'm an Italian fob, what can I say? You get the message. Um, one of the things that happened that was interesting was that Cortes asked the Tlaxcalans to give up human sacrifice and to give up the worship of their gods. 
The leaders in Toshkala just begged him not to push that point, since they were really not ready for it, and they told him, you know, we would rather die than give them up. So wisely, the Spaniards decided to let it go, and demonstrating an attitude that was quite uncommon during these times, a friar told Cortes, it would not be right to make them Christians by force. This is clearly an unusual sentiment in the 1500s, but, you know, Cortes decided to agree with it, which is even more unusual. So for the time being, the Spaniards decided to not to press the issue of human sacrifice, even though they did free some captives, both men and women were destined for sacrifice, but they didn't try to abolish human sacrifice as a whole or force the Tlaxcalans to give up their old religion. But in between these trading women and challenging one another's theologies, the Tlaxcalans gave Cortes lots of information about the layout of Tenochtitlan, the Mexica capital, and about the Mexica empire as a whole. Um, some of the information was very useful, some of it was kind of made up. For example, they told Cortes that in the past the giants used to live there, and they show Cortes what seemed to be proof of what they were saying. They showed him this giant femur bone who was as tall as a human being. But modern historians believe that these were not, this was not the femur of an actual human. This was the femur of a mammoth. These were mammoth bones, since the whole valley of Mexico was uh, one big archaeological park where thousands upon thousands of mammoths had died. Um, more to the point, now Mexica ambassadors arrived to visit Cortes, and they invited him to say, okay, great that you made peace with the Tlaxcalans, but now, on your way, if you, since you insist on coming to Tenochtitlan to visit our emperor, would you mind first stopping at Cholula? Cholula was a city that had been an ally of the Tlaxcalans, but I recently switched to the Mexica side of the conflict. And in case I didn't make that clear already, Tlaxcalans and Mexica hated each other. So the Tlaxcalans now added for Cholula. They were not too happy about the fact that they essentially, they saw it as a betrayal. The Tlaxcalans don't like the sound of this suggestion that the Spaniards should go through Cholula. Their standard policy was, whatever the Mexica want, we're going to do the opposite. So if the Mexica say go to Cholula, then to the Tlaxcalans that meant you should go anywhere in the world except Cholula. So they told Cortes to avoid Cholula since the people there were loyal to the Mexica. And while Cortes listened to them politely, he made it clear that he had his own plans and going to Cholula was part of them. Tlaxcalans were less than thrilled with this, but, you know, they were puzzled, but they were willing to give it a chance. After all, the Spaniards seemed weird and powerful in odd ways, so who knows, maybe there was some logic to what Cortes was saying. So they sent about 1,000 Tlaxcalan warriors to go with Cortes and the Spaniards to war Cholula. Nobody knows exactly what Cortes was thinking in heading out to war Cholula, it's possible that he was going there to crush the city, or at least make sure they would be loyal, since 
one of the problems with the geography of the Valley of Mexico is that if Cortes were to make his way to Tenochtitlan without having resolved a situation in Cholula, it would be problematic because Cholula could threaten his line of communication with Veracruz. He would stand in between Cortes heading toward Nochitlan and the coast from which he came. So he wanted to fix things, one thing or another. You know, this idea of having a possibly hostile city in the Spanish uh, in the Spanish forces rear that was not uh, something that Cortes was comfortable with. Either way, figuring out things with Cholula was not a bad idea. In the meantime, the couple of captains, including Alvarado and Vasquez de Tapia, were sent forward to explore the path toward Tenochtitlan. The Tlaxcalan, as they are getting to Cholula, the Tlaxcalan again warn Cortes that it's likely that they would be ambushed there, that the Cholulans would block the streets and use rocks from the roofs and do all these terrible things. Alvarado's Tlaxcalan mistress told him that a little more, you know, because so far you have the Tlaxcalan just spreading rumors about the Cholulans and Cortes is listening, but up to a point. A little more worrisome is the fact that Alvarado's Tlaxcalan mistress told him that one of the Tlaxcalan commanders wasn't so fond of suddenly being buddy-buddy with the Spaniards. He probably was still a bit sore from a few days earlier when the Spaniards were mowing down Tlaxcala warriors in battle, setting villages to the torch, and freeing Tlaxcala spies, but not before removing a few limbs from their bodies. So, the idea of making peace with the Spaniards had rubbed him the wrong way, and apparently he was ready to conspire with the Cholulans against the Spaniards. To avoid this scenario, but also trying not to make a big deal out of it, Cortés had him secretly strangled and, you know, so you can put an X on this guy and whatever his plans were. So it turns out this was quite useful pillow talk between Alvarado and this Tlaxcalan mistress. When they arrived at Cholula, the inhabitants of the city welcomed the Spaniards, but they asked that the Tlaxcalans not be allowed to enter the city. Because by now they were enemies with one another. Cortes said, fine, no problem. The Totonacs, however, did go with the Spaniards. They entered Cholula and apparently they were all welcomed there. During the initial meeting, Cortes, as usual, tried to convince them to give up their gods. As usual, the locals refuse. But at least they seem okay with the idea of swearing obedience to the Spanish king. Um, the Spaniards are given a lot of food and lodging in the city. You know, Cholula was no small provincial village. Uh, it is said that the city had been inhabited for possibly a thousand years. They had one of the very largest pyramids in the whole world. And some estimates suggest that it may have had up to 200,000 people living there. Some people suggest this estimate may be a bit inflated. In any case, this was a big place. It was a very, very large city. According to some sources, but again, it's very hard to figure out the truth, 
Moctezuma had secretly sent 20,000 warriors close to Cholula ready to attack the Spaniards. And he had asked the Cholulans to trap the Spaniards there. And then, you know, if everything went well, they could keep 20 of them to sacrifice to the gods. Keep in mind, this is highly speculative. You know, some people say that this is what happened. Other people say, no, it's very unlikely that this took place. Nobody knows for sure. In any case, after a couple of days of hanging out in Cholula, the Spaniards began to notice a mood change. Food was not forthcoming anymore. During the negotiations, one of the Cholula leaders let it slip out that Moctezuma had ordered that they would not give any more food to the Spaniards and that the Spaniards should not be allowed to go to Tenochtitlan. The Totonacs came in around this time and whispered in Cortes here saying, look, the Tlaxcalans may be right, the inhabitants here are planning to attack. You know, we have found holes in some of the streets that have been covered with wood, but there were pits there with stakes planted so that Spanish horses would just trip over them and get impaled there. Some Tlaxcalans also make their way into the city and tell Cortes, and I quote here, Be careful, for this city is hostile. We know that they sacrificed last night to their god of war. They offered him seven persons, five of them children, so that he should give them victory over you. And we have seen them moving all their baggage and women out of the city. So this is clearly... If this is true, this is worrisome stuff. Cortes replied to the Tlaxcalans with the words they had wanted to hear. Cortes' message to them is, get ready. In one of his usual strategic lies, Cortes told the Cholulans that he was planning to leave, so if they could please provide 2,000 warriors for the trip. The Cholulans were only too happy, because they figured they could catch the Spaniards between their own 2,000 warriors and the Mexica forces that were supposedly nearby. Remember the lady we discussed in episode 2, Malintzin, uh, sometimes referred to as La Malinche? I mentioned how important she was, and yet, you know, some of the primary sources, they all insist on how, what a big role she played during the whole expedition, and yet they tell us so little about her. Well, this is one of the cases where they do tell us about her. The story goes that she visited with some of the local people, the inhabitants of the city, and that the wife of a local leader took a liking to her, and so she warned Malintzin to stay away from the Spaniards, since they will soon be killed in their sleep. She told her to, you know, forget the Spaniards, come to my house instead, and you can then become the my my daughter-in-law. You can marry my son, and but please stay away from the Spaniards. It's not a good idea. And you know, I I know all this because uh, my husband is a captain, and they are preparing their move. Malintzin supposedly played the role, pretending to have zero loyalty to the Spaniards, that yes, she was done with this plan, 
and she just say, look, I need to return to the Spanish camp to collect all my belongings, and then I'll be right back. But what she did instead is return to the Spanish camp and tell everything to Cortez. If she hadn't, the whole story could change here. Uh, you know, things could have gone very differently. Cortez, however, had the woman who had suggested this plan to Malincina arrested. And the Spaniards now are beginning to notice that just as the Tlaxcalan had warned, some of the streets were being closed and stones were being piled along the roofs of many of the buildings. So Cortez decided it's high time to sort the truth from gossip, and in a move that would have greatly pleased Dick Cheney to no end, he invited some Cholulan priests to visit, he tied them up, and he had them tortured to interrogate them. The priests promptly spilled the beans, torture tend to have that effect on people, so they started talking real fast, and they told Cortez that the Mexica were planning on set. They told them to set up this ambush. They told them to sacrifice some of the Spaniards. That you know this whole thing had been ordered by Moctezuma, and that also they added that Moctezuma kept changing his mind. He one moment he wanted to make peace with the Spaniards, one moment he wanted to wipe them out. And apparently this was one of the moments when he wanted to wipe them out. So Cortes consulted with his captains about what to do next. And what they decide to do, and what they will do, is that the next morning, which by now is mid-October, they invite most of the lords of the city in the courtyard of the temple of Quetzalcoatl, so that they could greet them before they left town. About a hundred of the main lords came in. Cortes, in the meantime, keep in mind, some of the Mexica messengers that had come from Moctezuma were still in town. Cortes took them aside and he told them, I quote, These people wanted to kill me, and they say that Moctezuma was behind it. But I do not believe it because I hold him as a friend and know that he's a great lord, and the lord does not lie. I believe they wanted to do me this injury by treachery, as a scoundrels that they are, and people who have no lord, and for this they shall die. But you have nothing to fear, for beside being messengers, you are the envoys of the lord I regard as friend, who I have reason to believe is very good, and nothing will I hear to the contrary. Is this against their speech or what? I mean, this is Cortes in his classic good cop, bad cop. You know, he's telling them, I have to punish these bad Cholulans, but you have nothing to worry about, because I know you're loyal and your emperor Moctezuma is a good guy, you know. He's clearly just giving them a warning, but he's... You know, he's couching it in this good cop speech. So after this good cop speech, he's going to deliver some very bad cop action, sending a not subtle message to Moctezuma and voice. In the words of Bernal Diaz, Though it was early when the Cholulan warriors arrived, we were already quite prepared for what had to be done. 
Soldiers with swords and shields were stationed at the gate of the great court, so as not to let a single armed Indian escape. So what happened is the Spaniards closed the doors, closed many of the entrances to the area. Cortes gave the signal, and the Spaniards attacked. They killed all of the hundred lords who had come to meet them, plus many more people who were close to the courtyard. By now the Tlaxcalans stormed into the town, the Totonacs also started sacking the town, so the Tlaxcalans attacking from outside the city, they managed to enter and start pillaging left and right. Many of the high priests threw themselves from the top of the pyramids, they jumped rather than being captured. These, it's hard to call it a battle, because really only one side was armed and fighting, but this leads to a couple of days of pillage in the city. It's estimated that somewhere between low estimates suggest 3,000 people, high estimates suggest 30,000 people were killed at this time, depending on which sources you listen to. Making clear that he was the new sheriff in town, Cortes now picked the new leader of Cholula. You know, after killing pretty much everybody else, he had an easy time saying, uh, anybody disagree with the guy I pick? Clearly nobody did. Upon hearing what happened, and again, this according to some sources, we don't know if it's 100% true or not, but supposedly upon hearing what happened, the Mexica army that was stationed a few miles from Cholula fled. At least that's what is believed by those historians who believe that there was a Mexica army. Some are not so sure about it. Bernal Diaz wrote that he heard from a good source that Moctezuma, upon receiving this news, panicked and shut himself in for two days, making human sacrifices to Huitzilopochtli, the Mexica war god. And he heard the god speaking back to him, saying, deny responsibility, pretend that you had nothing to do with it, and invite the Spaniards and show them some friendship. It would be easy to kill the Spaniards in Tenochtitlan by blocking their escape. In Cholula, the Spaniards found cages where sacrificial victims were being fattened up, and the Spaniards decided to free these prisoners. About this old Cholula incident, the famous Spanish priest Bartolomeo de las Casas, in his accounts, went along with some native sources, saying that the massacre was done for terror purposes, that it was completely unjustified, that the Cholulans were not planning an attack, that all of this stuff was made up, and that really the only reason why this fairly brutal violence took place was because the Spaniards wanted to scare everybody else into submission. Bernal Diaz has some harsh words for De Las Casas, saying that he wasn't even there and basically doesn't know what he's talking about. And he said this idea that the Spaniards attacked the Cholulans for no reason is just complete crazy talk. Moctezuma, of course, as you may imagine, sent a message to Cortes saying that he had nothing to do with the plot and this was only done by, you know, local lords and he would punish them. Historian Camilla Townsend believes the massacre at Cholula took place because the Tlaxcalans fed the Spaniards fake information 
to get rid of the current Cholulan leadership that had moved away from an alliance with them to an alliance with the Mexica. Which, sure, it's possible, but obviously can't be proven. Back to the whole idea that we discussed in the previous episode about whether the locals, you know, whether the Mexica and other people believed that Cortes was a reincarnation of Quetzalcoatl. Well, clearly it's kind of hard to believe this. If they ever did believe it before, it's hard to continue believing it now since Cortes had promptly sacked the temple of Quetzalcoatl in the city. It does not seem the thing that Quetzalcoatl himself would do. The Tlaxcalans say, okay, great job on this victory at Cholula, but there are good chances that if you're going into Tenochtitlan, you're going to be attacked, so we're going to send warriors to come with you to help you. The Totonacs say, look, you know, we've been lucky so far, we've been doing a great job, but we're afraid to get killed. You know, the Mexica mean business. They are not the Cholulans, they are not the people we've faced so far. We want to go back home. And Cortes tried real hard to convince them to go on, but realizing they wouldn't budge, he gave them a bunch of gifts and sent them home. On their slow way toward Tenochtitlan, in many towns, Cortes ran into local people complaining that the Mexica would rape their wives and daughters in front of them and would make the men work like slaves. So these were subject towns were quite upset, you know, they were complaining about Mexica rules. The Tlaxcalans, in the meantime, kept insisting, don't go to Tenochtitlan, they are going to kill you. And Cortes replied, only God has the power to kill us. You know, we're not worrying about any human enemy. The Mexica keep doing the thing they have been doing, which hasn't been working, but somehow they think that now it will work. They keep giving the Spaniards a whole lot of gold, but they also say, please don't come to Tenochtitlan. You know, many of the local population may, even though we like you, you know, we meaning Moctezuma and the nobility, some of the locals wouldn't understand and will try to fight you. And plus the road over here is bad and we don't have a lot of food. And you know, nothing that Cortes would listen to. Cortes replied, basically deflecting responsibility for his choice, and he said, I can't go back, or my king will be mad at me. Moctezuma, by now, is clearly getting desperate. At one point, he sent a man pretending to be him, pretending to be Moctezuma, figuring that since Cortes was insisting on meeting him, well, great, he could meet this other guy, then the Spaniards could be happy and they would leave. This most tells you a lot about how terrible Moctezuma decision-making was at this point. It's not really clear. Who did he think he was going to fool? I mean, the Tlaxcalan took a look at this guy who was sent as here is Moctezuma. They took a in for probably 0.5 seconds and immediately told the Spaniards, that, that's not Moctezuma. Cortes laughed at this guy and said, come on, stop lying. I quote Cortes' words. He said, go home. Why do you lie to us? Whom do you take us to be? You cannot mock us, nor make us stupid, nor flatter us, nor become our eyes, nor trick us, nor misdirect our gaze. 
nor turn us back, nor destroy us, nor dazzle us, nor cast mud in our eyes. You are not he. Meaning you're not Moctezuma. And then Cortez continued, Now Moctezuma cannot hide from us. He cannot take refuge from us. Where, after all, can he go? Is he perhaps a bird that he can fly away? Or can he burrow under the earth? Is there somewhere a mountain pierced by a hole which he can enter? We shall see him. We shall not fail to look him in the face. We shall hear what he has to say. This speech actually reminds me a lot of the reggae song Down Pressor Man, made famous by Peter Tosh. I'm not totally sure, but I think I quoted Down Pressor Man already during the series about the 10,000. Uh, Xenophon's story about the Greek um, expedition in Persia, I think. Not sure. In any case, it seems to be fitting now. If you check out the lyrics of Down Pressure Man, they seem to be almost inspired by Cortes. Well, maybe not, but close enough. In any case, upon hearing this reply, we can probably imagine that Moctezuma found himself in urgent need of adult diapers. If he wasn't already scared before, now he definitely has a reason. And in case he wasn't creeped out enough, he heard from some of his shamans who had visited the Spaniards that on the way back, walking back toward Tenochtitlan, they had run into a drunken man who was bound with ropes. Now that's already kind of a weird sight. You come upon this drunken guy bound with ropes on the on the road. And this man told them that Tenochtitlan would soon be no more. He told them, look toward the lake. So, you know, they, by now they were coming from, they were coming at the edges of uh, the lake. They were coming in the area where, you know, from a distance they could see the lake far away. He told them to look at the lake from a distance. And when they turned, they all saw Tenochtitlan burning and fighting going on. Now, this was not something that was actually happening there, but it was like a vision, almost like a prophecy of what was to come. And to make things even creepier, when they turned back, the drunken man who was bound, who told them the story, had just vanished. He had disappeared. So the shaman told Moctezuma that they believed that the drunken man was Tezcatlipoca, one of the trickster gods of the Mexica pantheon. Most Mexica were ready to fight every inch of the way against the Spaniards, but Moctezuma was not so sure that this was the right thing to do. The story goes that Moctezuma kept crying and praying to the gods, trying to figure out what to do. And pulling the same Blues Brothers routine he has already done, in case you are wondering what I'm referring to, I believe in episode 2 I discussed the whole blues brother excuse that Moctezuma was giving he kept sending gold to the Spaniards and telling Cortes look don't come I'm sick no wait don't come the road is too bad Uh, my people don't like the visits the trip is gonna be dangerous you know every excuse in the book to try to convince Cortes to stay away and all of these were empty talk because Cortes was not going to be so easily swayed by now Cortes and the Spaniards arrived in sight of the lake. On November 8, 1519, they made their way to the causeway, connecting the mainland to Tenochtitlan, 
this, the Mexica capital that was on an island in the middle of the lake. All the soldiers were blown away by what they saw. They saw that the vision of this city on the island in the middle of this giant lake, it was one of the greatest sights that anyone could bear witness to. They said it looked like Venice if Venice was covered with pyramids. Tenochtitlan was bigger, cleaner, and more beautiful than any city in Europe. Cortés himself was really impressed with the city. He was impressed by the size, by the temples, by the number of canoes in the lake. Probably, and again, estimates are very vague, but probably somewhere between 200 and 300,000 people lived there. The whole valley of Mexico was, you know, beside the Tenochtitlan itself in the center of the lake. There were lots of towns around the lake. So it's estimated that the whole valley of Mexico probably was occupied by somewhere between low estimates, say 1 million people, high estimates, say 2.6 million. No one knows for sure. To give you an idea for frame of reference, Paris at this time had at most 150,000 people and probably less. So this was clearly a highly complex civilization. I'm going to quote for you regarding what they saw when they were coming upon the scene. He said, and when, I believe this is Bernal Diaz. I didn't write it in my notes, but I'm fairly sure that's Diaz. And when we saw all those cities and villages built in the water, and other great towns on dry land, and that straight and level causeway leading to Mexico, we were astounded. These great towns and queues and buildings rising from the water, all made of stone, seemed like an enchanted vision. Indeed, some of our soldiers ask whether it was not all a dream. It is not surprising, therefore, that I should write in this vein. It was all so wonderful that I do not know how to describe the first glimpse of things never heard of, seen, or dreamed of before. And yet, despite this amazing vision that Diaz is describing, giving us a hint of what's to come, Diaz continues saying, But today, all that I then saw is overthrown and destroyed. Nothing is left standing. So that tells you a bit about what's about to happen. The Mexica were equally puzzled by the sight in front of them. You know, the arrival of the Spanish armies with their Tlaxcalan allies, you know, they were used enough to the Tlaxcalans, but seeing the Spaniards, their white skin, their shining armor, their horses, the dogs, all of that stuff was very puzzling. And the fact that the Tlaxcalan you know, were allied with the Spaniards were singing upon coming into the city. They were singing as if for war. That did not reassure the Mexica. There were barely over 400 Spaniards at this time in this mission and a few thousand Tlaxcalan allies entering Tenochtitlan. This clearly was a pretty gutsy move. You know, in what men in all the world have shown such daring? There's no argument that these guys were gutsy, for sure. The Tlaxcalans in particular must have been thrilled 
entering their enemy cities with weapons in hand. You know, the only time Etelashkala never made it to Tenochtitlan was tied up, you know, with a rope around his neck and brought to be sacrificed on the Mexica pyramids. So these signal the shift in their relation. Now, the key moment, or rather a key moment in this story arrived now. Despite how much he had tried to avoid it, now Moctezuma finally accepted to meet with Cortes. We have no idea what Moctezuma was thinking, whether he was planning to trap the Spaniards into the city or to just wait to see how things would turn out or what. But in either case, Moctezuma was carried upon a litter and he approached the Spaniards on the causeways. Moctezuma at this time was about 40 years old. It said that he was fairly tall, not particularly dark-skinned, and he arrived at this point. He promptly there was an exchange of gifts taking place. Cortes tried to hug him, to give him a big hug, which I guess in Spain wasn't such a big deal, but among the Mexica there was definitely a no-no. You know, you don't just go out and hug the emperor. That's not the way it works. So some of Moctezuma attendants stopped him from doing it. But they were okay with Cortes shaking hands with Moctezuma. You know, to give you an idea, to put this in context, the Mexica had the death penalty for anyone daring to look at Moctezuma's face without authorization. So you can imagine how freaked out they were by this guy trying to hug their emperor. They tried to put, put their best face forward, though. They exchanged necklaces. Moctezuma was sporting some nose piercing, earplugs, a piercing with a jewel in his lip. Um, Diaz described a little bit the scene of what he saw around. He said, Who could count the multitude of men, women and children which had come out on the roofs, in their boats on the canals, or in the streets to see us? It was a wonderful sight, and as I write, it all passes before my eyes, as it were yesterday. Keep in mind that Diaz wrote his sole narration of the events decades after the fact. So when he says, you know, I can still see it, it's as if it just happened yesterday. Uh, this is not a guy who was writing three months later. This is happening, you know, this, he's emphasizing how much this has stuck with him for his whole life. The Spaniards were invited to set up home at the palace of Moctezuma's father. Uh, Moctezuma's father had long been dead, but in any case, the palace that used to belong to him in the central part of the city. This happened on November 8, 1519. Spaniards were offered food, lodging. It's unclear what Moctezuma actually said during this exchange, but Cortes supposedly decided to interpret that Moctezuma had told him that he accepted becoming a vassal of the king of Spain. And Moctezuma and Cortes replied, Have confidence, Moctezuma. Fear nothing. We love you greatly. This goes under the file, famous last words. If Cortes, who basically lied even in his sleep, said, Fear nothing, we love you greatly, 
then you really know it's time to get really scared. Moctezuma apologized for discourage, trying to discourage the Spaniards from coming to the Nochitlan, but he told the Spaniards that his people were afraid of the stories told about the Spaniards and about their powers. After the initial pleasantries, one of the first speeches that Cortes gave to Moctezuma was about one of his pet peeves, the, the idea of the superiority of Christianity, of how they should all become Christians. And Moctezuma said, yeah, I already heard this story from my ambassadors, but I'll quote from Moctezuma's answer. We have given you no answer, since we have worshipped our own gods here from the beginning and know them to be good. No doubt yours are good also. You know, here is Moctezuma is trying to be a nice guy. But do not trouble to tell us any more about them at present. In other words, great that you have your religion and you like it. We have ours and we like it. Can you stop bugging us about trying to change us? While these initial dialogues were taking place, the Spaniards started exploring the beauty of the city and the Mexica customs. Among the cultural practices that puzzled the Spaniards was the fact that the Mexica washed themselves multiple times a day. The Spaniards were more of the, hey look, spring has arrived, it's time to take a bath, school of thought. Their thinking was that paying much attention to the body was seen as opening the door to sin. So the Spaniards were really not that big on bathing. Personal hygiene was not high up on their priority list. So seeing the natives bathing multiple times a day, they thought it was really weird. Bernal Diaz was amazed that Moctezuma changed his clothes every day and didn't wear them again until several days later after probably they had been washed. For Diaz was like, what a weird custom. Can you believe these guys change their clothes and they bathe? Weird people out here. As most rulers around the world, Moctezuma enjoyed constant amusement. Some of his favorite pastimes were having uh, humpback dwarves singing and dancing around, having court jesters, musicians. It's kind of funny how these kind of things seem to be a common, a big hit with many kings and queens around the world, even in cultures that never met each other. You know, musicians, clowns, dwarves for some reason. All of this stuff is something that seems to often feature among the pastime of royalty. Moctezuma's palace was built on over six acres of land. The Spaniards around this time, they visit the market in Tlatelolco. Tlatelolco was a sister city of Tenochtitlan. It was basically right next door. It was kind of almost hard to tell where one city ended and the other began. In any case, the giant market in Tlatelolco was something that highly impressed the Spaniards. They said that they saw nothing no market was ever half this big. You know, in their whole lives, they'd never seen anything like it. They said that at the markets, there were judges to make decisions about disputes between customers and sellers. If anybody was caught stealing some goods, they were executed on the spots. There was a slave market there. 
There were also a lot of prostitutes and gamblers frequented the area. The presence of lots of sex workers is something that the Spaniards notice quickly in the city. Uh, in the Florentine Codex, they describe these women as painting their faces, and then, I quote, these were women who found pleasure in their bodies, shameless, eating mushrooms. You know, one of the customs that was rather common among the Mexica was the use of uh, hallucinogenic mushrooms, which was really fairly widespread in the population, but apparently many of the prostitutes were quite fond of this. There's really no report on whether the Spaniards did try these hallucinogenic mushrooms or not, so we are not entirely sure. But in Spain, you know, the Spaniards were not... It's not that they never heard of psychedelics before. The people in Spain use belladonna, mandrake, and other mild psychedelic herbs. One of the things that the Spaniards also noticed was that many women among the Mexica either tattooed or painted their bodies for erotic purposes. Beside taking notice of the local female population, the Spaniards were, of course, very impressed with the pyramids. Initially, they weren't really too clear on why the steps to go up and down the pyramids were so small and so steep. I remember as a kid, when I think I was 11 years old when I visited Mexico and I saw some of the pyramids, um, clearly not in Tenochtitlan, since Tenochtitlan is no more, but, you know, other pyramids around Mexico. But I was always puzzled that, you know, why by the time you reach the top of a pyramid and you look down, it seemed like the steps had disappeared, like there are no more steps, because you, they were so narrow that when you look down, you're like, are they still even there? How do I get back down? You know, what I didn't know was that the steepness, you know, the pyramids were so steep, but they were designed away so that the bodies of the, of the sacrificial victims would fall down. They could be rolled down the steps and they would fall down at the base of the pyramid with nothing to stop them. Today, eventually, many pyramids in Mexico have been closed because way too many tourists have been falling to their deaths by tripping on one of these tiny steps and just rolling the way all the way down. So many of these places that I was able to climb as a kid are no longer... I mean, they are still there, you can still visit them, but you cannot climb on them no more. Moctezuma seemed noticing that the Spaniards were so impressed with the pyramids, he took them to the top of the great temple, the main temple in Tenochtitlan. So the Spaniards climbed along with Moctezuma and they, from there they had a view of the whole city as well as the lake. And again from Bernal Diaz, some of our soldiers who have been in many parts of the world, in Constantinople, in Rome and all over Italy, said that they had never seen a market so well laid out, so large, so orderly and so full of people. This is still referring to the Tlatelolco market that they could they could now get a, a view from the top, from the top of the Great Temple. They were also shown, the Spaniards were shown the statues of the Mexica gods and the shrines which were covered in blood. 
Matthias said that next to the shrine it stunk worse than slaughterhouses in Spain. Again in his words, they kept a very large drum there, and when they beat it, the sounds was most dismal, like some music from the infernal regions, as you might say, and it could be heard for six miles away. So, Cortés now, he pressed the issue further. He said, how can a wise lord like you, Moctezuma, worship devils? And Moctezuma had been tremendously meek until this point, but Cortés had touched a sensitive spot. So, he got really mad that he said he should have never brought Cortés up there had he known that he was going to say such insulting things. Bernal Diaz report in the following way, the Moctezuma speech. He said, If I had known that you were going to say these terrible things, I would have not shown you my gods. We hold them to be very good. They give us health and rain and good crops and weather and all the victories we desire. So we are bound to worship them and sacrifice to them. And I beg you to say nothing more against them. The speech was forceful enough that it convinced Cortés to make a rare apology. Uh, he did ask, however, to allow the Spaniards to put up a picture of the Virgin Mary inside the temple. Moctezuma was not bothered by the idea of adding the Virgin Mary into the temple. He was bothered by the exclusive approach that the Spaniards had, which basically said our religion is the only good one, everything else needs to go away. He was still a bit bent out of shape about it, so he said he was going to stay behind. You know, the Spaniards could go back to the palace where they were staying, but he himself would stay behind to make amends to the gods for having brought these respectful Spaniards to the temple. By the time the Spaniards leave the great temple at Tenochtitlan, they get back to the palace where they were housed, and they find out that one of Cortés' carpenters had found signs that a door in the palace had been recently blocked. So the Spaniards got curious, why did they block it, what's behind it? So they opened it and found out that there was a lot of treasure that belonged to Moctezuma's deceased father had been hidden in there. And so they promptly decide to help themselves to it. They are, however, worried, because first they got on Moctezuma's nerves by insulting the Mexica gods, now they are pillaging Moctezuma's father's treasure. So clearly, I mean, they know they are doing stuff that could get on the wrong side of the Mexica, and they begin to worry that if the Mexica decide to remove some of the bridges connecting the city to the mainland, the Spaniards would be cut off from the mainland and be trapped. So that's going through the back of their mind. Just as these annoying thoughts are spoiling their happy pillaging, messengers from Tlaxcala arrive with uh, less than thrilling news. They tell Cortés that his lieutenant in Veracruz, you know, because if you recall, the Spaniards had left some men in Veracruz along the coast at this settlement they had created. Cortés' lieutenant, uh, Juan de Escalante, had been killed along with six other Spaniards and several allied Totonacs. How was he killed? What happened? What was going on? Well, here is what happened. was Some Mexica had stopped by to visit the Totonacs and they had asked for tribute. Escalante had said, no way, 
Uh, the Totonac surrender are protection. You cannot get tribute out of them. So this led to a fight which led to the deaths. Uh, along the way, the, the Mexica even captured a Spaniard during this small conflict, who was promptly sacrificed. And then they chop off his head and send his head back to Tenochtitlan for Moctezuma to see. And Moctezuma responded the way he normally does to pretty much everything. He panicked. He, he, didn't, he had not sent the order to have a fight with the Spaniards. And now he begins to freak out at the idea that some of his subjects are forcing a confrontation with the Spaniards. This not only is bad news for Moctezuma, it's definitely bad news for the Spaniards, because now several of the Totonac towns stop supporting the Spaniards, thinking, well, if you don't have the strength to protect us, what's the point of allying ourselves with you? So now, in this very delicate situation, Cortés managed to find something good in it. He finds that he now has the perfect excuse for his next move. And his next move is a rather bold one. He plans on kidnapping Moctezuma to make sure that his Mexica subject would not attack the Spaniards. Many of Cortés' captains say, look, we better take him now rather than wait for them to attack they had noticed that the Mexica were getting less and less polite. They were picking up on the signs that they were quickly wearing out their welcome in Tenochtitlan. So they all agreed that it was time for action. So Cortés, along with five of his main captains, including Pedro de Alvarado, Gonzalo de Sandoval, Juan Velázquez de León, Francisco de Lugo, and Alonso de Avila, they all went to seek an audience with Moctezuma. Bernal Diaz, the, one of our main sources, was, went along with them, along with a few other soldiers and the translators, Aguilar and Malintzin. During the visit, Moctezuma handed them jewels and even, you know, in this effort to keep the Spaniards feeling like they had this friendship, not only he handed out lots of gold to them, but even offered one of his daughters in marriage to Cortes. Cortes was like, well, thanks for all the gold, that's sweet, that's, I like that, but he quickly switched the discussion to confronting Moctezuma about the fight at Veracruz. He told him he had evidence that Moctezuma was responsible for the death of six of his soldiers. And he said he couldn't understand why Moctezuma would do this after they had become friends. He just flat out to his face accuses Moctezuma of dishonesty and of betraying his friendship. Now, nobody spoke to Moctezuma like that. You know, speaking to the Mexica emperor in those terms was clearly something that Moctezuma probably didn't even know how to respond to. He was so outside the pale of what normally happened in the throne room. You know, and tension in the room increased with pretty much every word that was spoken. By now, Cortés is going full on. He says, by now I believe that you, meaning Moctezuma, were behind the Cholula attack as well. And he says, I quote from Bernal Diaz's recording of Cortés' words, I have no desire to start a war on this account or to destroy this city. Everything will be forgiven, provided you will now come quietly with us to our quarters, 
and make no protest. You will be as well served and attended there as in your own palace. But if you cry out or raise any commotion, you will immediately be killed by these captains of mine, whom I've brought for the sole purpose. Hoo, 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 hoo. Talk about a gamble. Cortés had just threatened with death the most powerful man in all of Mexico. Moctezuma responded, saying he had never authorized the attack and he would uh, send men to capture the people who did it and punish them. You know, the guilty would be punished. But he said he would not go with the Spaniards and become their prisoners. In, uh, again, the words attributed to Moctezuma by um, Bernal Diaz, my person is not such as can be made a prisoner of. Even if I would like it, my people would not suffer it. Cortés said, well, that's too bad, but you really have to come with us until we discover the truth. So they talk back and forth, they're arguing about what to do, and some of Cortés' captains are getting tense. Juan Velázquez de León said, what is the use of all these words? Either we take him or we knife him. If we do not look after ourselves now, we shall be dead men. Diaz described Velázquez's voice as high and terrifying. Moctezuma clearly couldn't understand because Velázquez had just uh, Velázquez de León had just spoke uh, spoken in Spanish. So he asked, "What was all the commotion about? You know, what was being said?" And Malintzin told him that he better go along and he'll be treated well, and I quote, but if you stay here, you will be a dead man. Moctezuma is trying in every way to avoid this. He say, look, take some of my children as hostages, and the Spaniards say, nope, not good enough. Um, they tell him, look, you need to tell your guards that you're going of your own free will, and that, you know, if you want to give a good excuse, tell that your god, the war god, Huitzilopochtli, uh, has commanded it. You can bring your servants, you can bring your women. Uh, in the meantime, you can even keep ruling over the Mexica. You know, we are not going to take that away. Basically, what the Spaniards are saying is, you're going to be our puppet ruler. You know, you live next to us, we tell you what to do, and then you got to make the big voice and act as if you are ruling over the Mexica. At this juncture, Moctezuma had a chance to die well. You know, he could call for his guards have all the Spaniards killed. Of course, he would be killed before they are, but he would probably have, you know, at this point, the Spaniards are in his palace. They would be quickly surrounded and killed. So he could do it. He would have to pay with his life. But fear robbed him of his chance to go out in a blaze of glory. His fear had already caused him to make several mistakes that have made it possible for the Spaniards to now be within striking distance. And and now he makes another one. Amazingly enough, he accepts to move with the Spaniards, which is basically means becoming their prisoner. He's too scared to get killed before his guards could attempt to rescue him, and so he just goes along. This was a man whose orders had caused the imprisonment and the enslavement of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of people, and now he gets to find out how captivity is not so fun once the roles are switched. 
Cortez clearly played his hand masterfully. Uh, the friendly behavior of the previous days had lulled Moctezuma in a false sense of security, so that he had not seen that the Spaniards were getting ready to make their move. He had lowered his defenses and let them get too close. And now all of the Mexica were going to pay dearly for this mistake. Obviously, the Mexica weren't stupid. It didn't take long for many of the nobles to realize that Moctezuma was a prisoner. Yes, he was treated well. Uh, he even got into this weird relationship with the Spaniards. You know, he liked some of the guards who were watching over him day and night. You know, they would these guys would crack jokes with him and make him laugh. But no matter how gilded the cage, it was still a cage. In the following days, things got even weirder because the men who had killed Escalante and the other few Spaniards were now brought as prisoners in front of Cortes, and they said they didn't do it under Moctezuma's orders, they had acted independently. Later, however, probably after enough torture, they said that Moctezuma had ordered it. So, obviously we don't know. You know, we have no idea if they were, they changed their story just because if you torture people long enough, they'll tell you anything you want, or because Moctezuma had actually ordered it. It's hard to tell. But now Cortes faced Moctezuma and said he believed he had ordered it, but he liked him so much that he wouldn't let anyone hurt him. Again, that's the classic Cortes game of playing good cop, bad cop, in a way that really seemed to work on Moctezuma. First, scare him, you know show him the possibility of something horrible happening to him, and then show him some love, say, oh, but I like you so much that don't worry, I'll take care of you. Cortez, however, did not like so much the men who had killed Escalante, so he sentenced those men, 17 of them, to be burned to death in the square in front of the Great Pyramid. To add insult to injury, Moctezuma was brought along and forced to watch the execution of 17 of his men, these guys were tied up, set on fire, while still alive. Their screaming was the only sound throughout the plaza. You know, many, many Mexica gathered together to see what was happening, and they see some of their own people getting burned to death in front of their emperor without their emperor intervening or doing anything. So the Mexica saw this burning in stunned silence. How could Moctezuma have allowed it. Theirs was the most powerful empire in the country, and yet, due to their emperor's lack of resolve, here they were strangers who had made themselves at home and were even burning to death Mexica soldiers on the public square. You have to wonder about what was going on through the heads of most Mexica at this point. Cortes told Moctezuma he could go free now if he wanted. Moctezuma said, thank you, but he knew that Cortes' offer was a bluff, since the captains wouldn't let him. You know, Aguilar, one of the Spanish translators, he had told Moctezuma ahead of time that don't even think about taking Cortes' offer. So, you know, Moctezuma understood that this was just an empty gesture and didn't take him up on it. For the following few months, Moctezuma seemed to still be ruling. He still had sex with his women, he still received visits. 
even went out of the city with the Spaniards to hunt. He would walk out, of course, under Spanish guards and watch ball games and visit his zoo. Cortés and Moctezuma even developed this really weird relationship where they would play games together and gamble together. In one occasion, Cortés had a soldier who had been disrespectful to Moctezuma flogged. Moctezuma regularly gave gifts to his guards. Our main source, uh, Bernal Diaz, at one point asked Moctezuma if he could do him a favor, specifically the favor being, you know, he, he was asking for a gift, what he desired most. And as it turns out, what he desired most was a pretty Mexica woman, and Moctezuma gave him one who was later called Doña Francisca. Similarly, while taking breaks from plotting and conquering empires, Cortés had sex with a daughter as well as a niece of Moctezuma. No comment there, interesting enough. Uh, Moctezuma at one point asked permission to pray at the great temple, and Cortés said, okay, sure, you can go under guard, um, under guards who clearly will try to kill you if you try to flee, but yes, you can go and pray, just don't perform human sacrifices. Moctezuma, in one of his rare defiant moments, sacrificed some people anyway, and afterwards was brought back to his quarters. The Spanish guards decided to ignore the human sacrifices to avoid trouble for the time being. Moctezuma said he loved Cortés as a brother. Now, all of these weird dynamics between Cortés and Moctezuma, either Moctezuma's words were an act because he had to, or possibly the Stockholm Syndrome should be named Tenochtitlan Syndrome, because Moctezuma seemed to be fitting that twetty. I mean, it's like he's developing this really bizarre, strange relationship with the Spaniards. Along the way, he told Cortes that the Mexica had to be ruled through fear. That was the proper way to handle the empire. That was clearly fear was obviously working on him. So I don't know if it was true for the rest of the Mexica. It was definitely true as far as dealing with Moctezuma, but. You know, we'll see more about that. Cortés, in the meantime, was quite unhappy with the news that the successor of Escalante was being bossy with those Totonacs who had still remained under Spanish influence. So he had brought him to Tenochtitlan and put him in chains. Cortés also organized his men to start building four large boats, since he figured that the lake would be their only escape route if the Mexica decided to block the bridges. So he spent much time sailing in this boat to learn as much as he could about the lake. One of the first hints that the Mexica had had enough started during a visit to Texcoco, um, one of the other main cities along the lake. They were part of the Mexica Triple Alliance, along with Tenochtitlan and Tecuba. Cortés had the younger brothers of King Cacamatzin, who was the grandson of the legendary Nezahualcoyotl, who was the main subject, the main character of uh, the bonus episode, the prequel to this whole series. So here we are dealing with a couple of generations later. Cortés had the younger brothers of the king show him around. In that moment, a messenger from Moctezuma arrived and took these brothers aside. Supposedly, 
what they will say later is that the messenger had arrived to tell them to give uh, as much gold to the Spaniards as they wanted. But Cortes thought that these whispering each other's ear was really a sign of a trap. So he ordered the brothers executed. Moctezuma intervened, saying, no, 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 don't do it, please. And Cortes said, okay, fine, I won't kill them then. However, Cacamatzin, the king of Texcoco, didn't really appreciate this and started planning a rebellion. Moctezuma found out and immediately went to tell Cortes about this planned rebellion. Probably what was going on is Moctezuma was scared that Cortes would find out on his own and that would take vengeance on him. So Moctezuma sent a message to Cacamatzin saying, look, I am friends with the Spaniards now, so do not attack them. But obviously the deference for the emperor was beginning to fade away because Cacamatzin replied that Moctezuma should be ashamed of having been played by the Spaniards. He said, the Spaniard took my uncle's heart and his strength. Kakamatsin also had a brother named Ish... I'm gonna take a wild guess here because I... Okay, let me... Whew, sometimes Mexica names are troubling, so let me try to play with it. Ready, Daniele? You can do it. Come on. Ishtalixochil. Oh, come on, that was easy. Piece of cake. Ishtalixochil. Hmm, maybe. I don't know if I pronounced it right. In any case... He said he agreed with his brother, even though they had been fighting and they were kind of competing for the kingdom in Texcoco. Um, Ishlis Xochitl said he agreed with his brother Kakamatsin and that they should join forces. But as it turns out, Ishlis Xochitl had other plans. Rather than join forces with his brother against the Spaniard, he decided to fake an alliance only to be able to capture his brother and deliver him to Cortes as a prisoner. So the internal rivalries in the politics of Texcoco convinced him that casting his lot with the Spaniards was the best option. Other lords allied with Cacamatzin were captured as well. Ixtlixochil's decision to side with the Spaniards was a really key moment in the political game that was being played here. Cortes picked another one of the brothers as uh, naming him as future king of Texcoco. In the meantime, Cacamatzin tried to bribe Cortes by giving him gold. Uh, Cortes' men believed that there was a lot more of gold. This was just a taste. So Alvarado brought Cacamatzin back to Texcoco to find it. Hours went by. They didn't return. So Cortes sent some other people to see what was going on, what's taking so long. Weren't they just looking for some gold and coming back? He found out that Alvarado had got annoyed at not finding gold. So he had tied Cacamatzin to a stake and was trying to encourage him to talk by having him burned with brands from a fire. Not killing him, just, you know, barbecuing him a little. By January, Cortes force Moctezuma to ask his lords to swear loyalty to the Spaniards and to hand over some of their kids as hostages. So Cortes is taking just one inch at a time but is slowly asking for more and more and more. 
Moctezuma gave his usual wimpy speech, saying that none of this would have happened if he wasn't the will of Huitzilopochtli. However, as he's saying this and he's inviting the lords to do as Cortes is saying, and he's saying, yeah, this is the will of the gods, he broke down and cried as he was speaking. Moctezuma was clearly much better at dishing out pain to others than handling it. After this uh, oath of allegiance was sworn by some of the lords, Cortes could now claim that any hostility to him would be considered a rebellion, and so he would be justified in punishing the Mexica. Moctezuma handed one more daughter to Cortes as a concubine, again trying to placate him, and Cortes convinced also Moctezuma to grant permission to build an altar to the Virgin Mary in the Great Temple. So they went out to the great temple, you know, Cortes and some of his men. The priests were horrified at the request. They said that if the Spaniards did anything there, the whole empire would rise against them. And Cortes responded in less than diplomatic fashion by smashing some of the statues of the Mexica god. The Mexica got, as you may imagine, fairly horrified, so they quickly set up, uh, they organized this movement of many men trying to remove the statues from the temple, you know, being very careful about not breaking them and relocating them. They never told the Spaniards where the new statues, where the statues were placed. Um, in the meantime, the Spaniards, fairly pleased with themselves, they placed a Christian altar in the temple. Cortes ordered that no more sacrifice should be performed, which, you know, probably they were still done in hiding somewhere, but not officially at least. Moctezuma told Cortes, say, I'm sorry to inform you, but my gods have ordered me to make war on the Spaniards. However, I don't want to, you know, I really don't want to fight you guys. So he basically said, look, I, I'm going to let you guys take anything you want and live in peace. It's funny how Moctezuma was clearly learning from Cortes because both Cortes and Moctezuma were using the same technique of pretending to be nice but arguing that other forces were bad cops pushing for certain action. In this case, Moctezuma is saying, look, it's my gods who are ordering me to start a war against you. I don't want to do it. You guys are nice. I like you. You are my friends. Just grab some gold and go home. Cortes had played his game long enough to not to fall for it. However, some Mexica were beginning to organize resistance. Cortes, well, he didn't fall for it, but he did play the game. He said, okay, we're going to leave, but we have no ships on the coast. So uh, Moctezuma, just be a darling and control your followers for a while. Just give us some time and then we'll be going soon enough. Obviously, you know, despite all the polite uh, words being tossed back and forth, tension is rising. Most of the Spaniards by now started sleeping in full armor with horses ready to go in case a battle started. In the words of Bernal Diaz, I grew so accustomed to going about armed and sleeping in the way I have described that after the conquest of New Spain I kept the habit of sleeping in my clothes and without a bed. I slept better that way than on a mattress. What is more, I can only sleep for a short time at night. I have to get up and look at the sky and stars and walk about for a bit in the dew. That's probably a 
clear sign of PTSD on uh, Bernal Diaz's part. Back in Spain in the meantime, what was going on? Because I remember all of this stuff, all of this expedition, none of this was authorized by the king. This is all in a curious legal limbo it's happening. So back in Spain, some people wanted to have Cortés and this man hanged as rebels. Others, however, were impressed with the gold that they were sending back. So the king okayed, the king of Spain okayed the meeting with the man sent by Cortés. And you know, he asked to treat well the natives that they had brought with them. Despite this, several of the natives they brought with them died of European diseases, as you may imagine. And Cortés had picked this man well, the ones who were to go to Spain and convince the king that he should uh, legitimize their mission, because these guys started handing out gold to many key figures around the king to try to get them on their side. Uh, when the governor of Cuba found out that Cortes was sending much gold back to the king, he decided to find other ways to, to stop them. You know, legally speaking, Velázquez, the governor of Cuba, probably had the law on his side. But while having the law on your side is a nice thing, Cortes had gold on his side, and that's an even better thing. And it was clearly gaining him lots of friends back in Spain. To make the whole thing more exciting, in case, you know, this political corruption back home, this prospect of this showdown with the Mexica in Tenochtitlan, one more thing happened to add to the complexity of the situation. In April 1520, news arrived from Veracruz that 18 Spanish warships had just arrived on the coast. Cortés understood at once that the governor of Cuba, Diego Velázquez, had sent someone to look for him to settle the score, and the visit was not going to be friendly. The someone, specifically, was a man named Panfilo de Narvaez, who had just arrived in Mexico with some 900 armed men to go after Cortés. What neither Narvaez nor Cortés knew at this time was that the ships were carrying with them the very key that would help the Spaniards in the conquest of Mexico. Because realistically, no matter how well Cortés had orchestrated things so far, once the Mexica would find a way to get rid of Moctezuma and his weak leadership, they were very likely to be able to crush Cortés and his men. However, now Cortés' enemy... Narvaez was going to unwittingly hand him over the Trojan horse that Cortes badly needed. What happened was that the smallpox epidemic had broken out in Spain in 1519 and had been brought to Cuba. And one of the men on the ships had caught it. The true conquerors of Mexico had just arrived and they were the germs that this man was carrying. But no one knew this at this time. You know, oblivious to the importance of this sick man on the ship, the two Spanish commanders were busy plotting the best way to murder each other. Narvaez had arrived on the coast and started visiting the Totonacs, telling them that Cortés was a bad man. 
The Totonacs wisely treated him well, because essentially they were waiting to see which Spaniards would win. And, you know, their alliance with Cortés was one of convenience. It's not that they had any great love for him. Um, they just wanted to be on the good side of the top dog among the Spaniards. Whether these would be Cortés or somebody else didn't really matter much to them. Moctezuma received news from his spies of Narvaez landing, and he didn't tell Cortés about it. According to at least some sources, Narvaez had sent a message to Moctezuma saying that he would free him and then leave the land. And Moctezuma had replied, Great, we'll help you kill Cortés, so much for being his brother and vassal, and we'll send presents. Later, afraid of being busted, Moctezuma eventually told Cortés what was going on, that Narvaez had arrived, and he told him, look, you can flee now. Now there are Spanish ships, so you don't need to wait no more. Cortés sent a letter to Velázquez saying, please don't stop me from converting Indians here. You know, he made his semi-pirate enterprise sound like some holy mission. It was a lame attempt, and even Cortés must have known that he was never going to work with Narvaez or Velázquez. However, a few of Narvaez's men in the meantime had visited Veracruz and they started, you know, trying to get Cortés guys to give up their loyalty. Sandoval, who was Cortés' man in Veracruz, ordered them arrested and sent to Tenochtitlan uh, in chains. When they arrived to Tenochtitlan, in classic Cortés fashion, he freed them and welcomed them criticizing Sandoval for having been so rough with them. Again, the classic good cop, bad cop routine. Cortés gave them gold. Why would he do that? Well, to buy them, right? He wanted to get them on his side. And something magical happened here. Suddenly, with each gram of gold piling up in their pockets, their loyalty to Narvaez evaporated in proportional fashion. By the time Cortés was done dropping all this gold in their lap, they didn't even know who Narvaez was anymore. And they suggested sending gold to other people in Narvaez's army in order to bring them to Cortés' side. Cortés liked the idea, so he sent these guys back to Narvaez to tell other people about the wealth they had seen in Tenochtitlan. So when these guys rejoined Narvaez's forces, they began whispering in everyone's ears that Cortés could cover in gold anyone supporting him. Um, but I quote, here is a quote from uh, Bernal Diaz. But if they had known the Mexican strength, no one of them would have volunteered. What's going on with the Totonacs? The Totonacs, as I mentioned, they were sitting on the sideline waiting to see who would win. The, our old friend, the Fat Chief, had uh, chosen to welcome Narvaez initially to avoid trouble, but he quickly was turned off by the fact that some of Narvaez's men were capturing Totonac women and handing them out to the men uh, to be raped, clearly. Cortés at least had the decency to be given sex slaves as presents. Narvaez instead went on raping expeditions without asking permission, so he ended up on the fat chief's bedside. Moctezuma supposedly offered Cortés some 
100,000 Mexica warriors to help go crush the Spaniards who were coming for him. The plan was probably to betray Cortés and kill him and his guys by joining the other Spaniards, or perhaps wait for them to kill each other and then wipe out the survivors. But Malintzin told Cortés that she knew Moctezuma was lying, and not to listen to him. So Cortés bid goodbye to Moctezuma. Uh, Moctezuma seemed sad at seeing Cortés leave to face the Spaniards on the coast, Malintzin again reading Moctezuma like an open book says he's faking it, he's just putting on a show. In any case, Cortés took 80 men with him and left about 120 with Alvarado in Tenochtitlan. Many other Spaniards were in various missions, some in Veracruz, some in missions to explore the interior of the country. He managed to then gather some of the men from this expedition in the interior until he had roughly about 260 men with him. Malintzin was along with the 260 men by Cortés' side. From a purely numerical point of view, the odds look grim for Cortés. You know, his 260 Spaniards against some 900 Spaniards obviously was not a good match. But Cortés was a brilliant politician, using gentleness and bribes to change numerical odds that did not look good. While waiting for Cortés to show up, Narvaez was feeling pretty confident about his superior numbers, set himself up, you know, they decided to camp at the top of a Totonac temple. That's where they set up base. On the night between May 28th and May 29th, 1520, is when Cortés will get to find out whether he can pull off the upset or not. He was raining heavily, so Cortés and this man decided to attack at night using darkness and rain as cover. They managed to capture a couple of Narvaez sentries. One of them they captured, one of them escaped. And the one who escaped ran like crazy, got to the top of the temple and warned Narvaez so that he and his men just woke up all of a sudden, started preparing for battle. They had not expected Cortés to get there so quickly. But speaking of not expecting for them to get there so quickly, Sandoval and the men under him were immediately there right after the sentry and Cortés showed up shortly thereafter. So here you have many of Narvaez's men still half asleep finding Sandoval and this man. During the fighting, one of Sandoval's pikemen managed to stick his pike in Narvaez's eye, taking it out. Uh, some of the other men that Sandoval had with him set fire to the roof of the shrine. So not only is Narvaez one eye short, but he's also got his feet burned in this fire and these men were not really feeling the fight very much, so they quickly surrendered. Cortés, who had arrived on the scene in the meantime, allowed this surgeon to treat Narvaez and try to make sure he wouldn't die. Cortés' men took away from Narvaez the instructions sent by the governor of Cuba, Velázquez, and tossed them aside so that Cortés could claim not to have read the orders of his superior and basically not knowing what that they were telling him to return. Most of the men under Narvaez were defeated there. A few of them barricaded themselves in a chapel which contained a picture of the Virgin Mary. 
Cortez attacked this position with his own... Actually, after having stolen Narvaez's artillery, he used the cannons against this position. And this will upset quite a few ultra-religious Spaniards. But being a little blasphemous paid off since the remainder of Narvaez's men gave up. All in all, only 15 of them have been killed against a couple under Cortez. So it really hadn't been much of a battle in terms of numbers of people killed of casualties but it had been a very important confrontation in terms of making sure that Cortes now not only you know he defeated this threat but now he potentially had a lot of manpower under him Cortes turned to his prisoners and said that he would free them all if they agreed to join him um some of Cortes' men were actually mad at how nice he was to the defeated Spaniards. But obviously there was a method to his madness. He wasn't interested in revenge, but he was very interested in recruiting more soldiers for a possible confrontation with the Mexica. Cortes sent ahead about 45 of them to Tenochtitlan under guard. However, these guys, as they made their way to the Tenochtitlan, they were killed by some of the Mexica. A clear sign that at least some of the Mexica were chomping at the bit and were itching to fight the Spaniards despite Moctezuma's meek disposition. If things had gone very smoothly for Cortes, the same cannot be said for what had been going on in back in Tenochtitlan. When Cortes was still in Tenochtitlan, before heading for the coast to fight the other Spaniards, he had given permission to the Mexica to celebrate the Toshcatl religious festival. This was a ritual that, you know, when you read the symbology of it all, it's actually kind of cool. It's a whole ritual representing the fragility of love, the impermanence of life. There's some interesting symbolic meaning, but of course, being a Mexica ritual, of course it ends with some bloody sacrifice and hearts being ripped out of chests and all of the good stuff. In any case, what happens is that this is a big deal. This is a very important religious ritual in the life of the Mexica. And you know, if if we had never-ending time for this stuff, it would be interesting to get into some of the religious stuff, but there's so much narrative as is that I'll leave this to the side for the time being. This is happening in May 1520. That's the time frame when this religious ritual is supposed to take place. A few days ahead, the Tlaxcalans are beginning to stir Alvarado's paranoia by saying that the Mexica may try to rebel during the festival. Then again, Alvarado was fairly violent and equally paranoid by nature. Maybe had Maybe he did have some reasons to be on edge. Maybe this was not just the Tlaxcalan spreading rumors. The Mexica had not been the friendliest as of late. They had stopped bringing food. A Mexica girl who said that food should be given to the Spaniards was found hanged. They had seen a bunch of stakes planted in the ground at the location where the festival was to take place. And the Tlaxcalans had told Alvarado that the stakes were there to tie the Spaniards and sacrifice them after they would capture them. Alvarado had also heard rumors that the Mexica were planning to hold sacrifices beside the one that had been allowed, and they wanted to bring back the statues of the gods, despite the fact that Alvarado had told them, no, you can't do that. 
So at one point Alvarado had rescued three men who looked like they were going to be sacrificial victims. He took them aside, brought them in the Spanish quarters and asked them, you know, what do you guys know? Are they planning sacrifices? Are they planning a rebellion? What's going on? But either these three guys didn't know anything or they didn't want to speak. So either way, Alvarado switched his role from the rescuer of these guys to becoming the torturer of these guys. So he promptly tortured them by placing burning logs on top of their stomachs. They still said nothing. So to improve their morale, Alvarado had one of them thrown from the palace roof while the other two watched. Which is kind of weird how first he's disgusted with human sacrifice, only to torture and kill one of the guys he had quote-unquote rescued on suspicious that he may know something. So that's a little odd, but in any case, one of the other two surviving members of this party decide that he didn't really want to get thrown from the roof, so he offered instead some info that he, he say he heard that there was an insurrection, a rebellion that would take place immediately after the festival. This is possibly true, or possibly the guy just made up what he figured Alvarado wanted to hear in order to avoid getting murdered by this irritable Spaniard. In either case, Alvarado decided that this information was worth looking further into it, and in Alvarado's vocabulary, looking further into meant torturing somebody. So he had two of Moctezuma's relatives tortured, and they also said whether because it was true or whether because they gave Alvarado what he wanted to hear, they said that an uprising was being planned. Alvarado told Moctezuma to do something about it, but Moctezuma replied, what do you want me to do about it? You know, I'm, I'm here a prisoner, I can't do anything, you know. Plus, there really was no solid evidence that this rebellion was being planned. It's highly likely that no rebellion was planned, and that the Tlaxcalans just freaked out Alvarado into striking first. The Tlaxcalans were often sacrificed after this festival. You know, many of their relatives have probably been killed after such a festival. So it's not that crazy to think that they were a bit on edge, and that they would be more than willing to start spreading unfounded rumors of revolt, feeding Alvarado's paranoia for revenge. According to Mexica sources, they, which of course, you know, who knows whether they tell the truth or not, but they say that they weren't planning any rebellion and that what's about to happen happened because of greed. That Alvarado had seen the gold jewelry worn by the dancers at the festival and that had inflamed his desire to just get rid of them to steal their gold. This is also unlikely. You know, if the rebellion story is probably not true, this, what the Mexica say, is probably also not true. Because, you know, he had plenty of jewelry already. He, there were many easier ways to get gold than just stage a mass attack in the middle of the ceremony. So, bottom line, who knows? We are never really going to know what was happening with... What we do know is that, in any case, the, the ritual began, the dance began, and Spaniards and Tlaxcalans blocked all the entrances to the plaza. And at one point, Alvarado gave the order, which doesn't exactly leave much to the imagination, because his order was, let them die, 
and his men promptly attack the dancers. According to some of the Mexica sources written shortly after the conquest, I'm going to quote from their account. They ran in among the dancers, forcing their way to the place where the drums were played. They attacked the man who was drumming and cut off his arms. Then they cut off his head and he rolled across the floor. Then all the other Spaniards began to cut off heads, arms and legs and to disembowel the Indians. Some had their heads cut off, others were cut in half, and others had their bellies lit open, immediately to fall dead. Some attempted to run away, but their intestines dragged as they ran. Talk about an image that's going to give you nightmares, right? You have these guys trying to escape this carnage, but they trip on their own intestines falling out of their bellies. Just give me just one second and I'm going to go throw up in a corner and I'll be right back. In any case, back to the quote. They seem to tangle their feet into their own entrails. No matter how they try to save themselves, they could find no escape. Those who reached the exits were slain by the Spaniards guarding them, and others jumped over the walls of the courtyard, while yet others climbed up the temple. And still others, seeing no escape, threw themselves down among the dead and escaped by faking death. So great was the bloodshed, that blood ran through the courtyard like water in a heavy rain. The pools of blood widened, and the stench of blood and entrails filled the air. The Spaniards ran into the communal houses to kill those who were hiding. They ran everywhere and searched everywhere. They invaded every room, hunting and killing. So, yes, that quote tells you pretty clearly what was going on, at least in terms of the action. It's estimated that the Spaniards in this surprise attack against this group of Mexica were involved in this ritual, and as such they were not armed, they did not have their weapons ready, so they made easy targets. They killed possibly about two to 3,000 people, most of them being the best warriors that the Mexica had. But of course, being the best warriors if you have no weapons doesn't help you a whole lot in this kind of engagement. So far, the Mexica had suffered, without retaliation, multiple offenses. They had suffered uh, essentially what amounted to a Spanish invasion, the kidnapping of their emperor, stealing of their gold, and the destruction of their gods. And still they had managed to, because Moctezuma had said we need to keep the peace, they still kept the peace despite all that. Alvarado's massacre, however, manages to push them over the edge. Now, uh, retaliation is going to show up with a vengeance. Up at the top of the Great Pyramids, some Mexica climbed up there and started pounding on the drums, rallying the rest of the city. Uh, as the Spaniards realize, okay, we just killed 3,000 of them, it's probably to be expected that they are not going to be in a very good mood, so they retreat inside the palace. The Mexica start pouring in from the various sides of town into the plaza. And, you know, the Spaniards are edgy. So they, just because they decided they don't really need them anymore, you know, the situation is getting past the diplomatic standpoint. They will keep Moctezuma, but they kill Kakamatsin, the king of Texcoco, who was prisoner. They, king, uh, they kill several of the other hostages. Alvarado had been wounded during the battle. 
And when he got back into the palace, he went to yell at Moctezuma. And he said, See what your people have done to me? Moctezuma quite reasonably replied, Alvarado, if you had not begun it, my men would not have done this. You have ruined yourselves and me also. The Mexica burned the ships, those boats that the Spaniards had put together to sail along the lake. They burned them down, thereby eliminating any option to flee using the lake. They also at this point tried to storm the palace. and There was a ton of fighting by the doors, but not... Well, I'll let the, uh, some of the post-conquest accounts by the Mexica tell you a little bit about what happens. Here is the quote. A few people attempted to communicate with the Spaniards. They hoped to win their favor by giving them advice and information or by secretly bringing them food. But the guards found them and killed them on the spot. They broke their necks or stoned them to death. So what's happening is that after an aborted attempt to storm the palace, which the Spaniards are able to hold on to and keep the Mexica out, many Mexica warriors, enraged by the death of two or three thousand of their own, they start going all over the city looking for spies, looking for essentially Spanish sympathizers. And in the process, not only they killed those who were actually had been a little too friendly with the Spaniards, they even end up killing a bunch of their own people in multiple occasions. But for the next few days, the Spaniards remain barricaded inside. Occasionally fighting breaks out as the Mexica try to storm the palace. And if that's how they spend their days, the nights are not exactly any easier. Because beside the difficulty of finding good sleep when you are in the midst of a city full of people who want you dead, the Spaniards are also a bit disturbed by the constant howling of the women in mourning because of all the people who have been killed in the plaza. It's in this context that, on June 24th, 1520, Cortés returned with 1,300 soldiers. You know, he, he left with only some, but he comes back with so many more because... He was able to recruit those who had been sent against him. So he has a lot more men than he ever has. He comes back with 1,300 soldiers, including 100 horses, uh, many experts in the use of muskets, crossbow, and also some 2,000 Tlaxcalans arriving to land support. They arrive in Tenochtitlan, and the lively city that Cortés had left behind is just a memory now because what he finds instead is a ghost town. There's just complete silence upon his arrival. You know, the Mexica had all hid away. They were all in their houses. There was no one in the streets, no one to greet them. The Mexica let Cortés and the Spaniards come into the city as a trap, because they wanted to be able to catch all of the Spaniards within the city to be able to wipe them out. Cortés was furious, that his plan to win the empire without fighting too hard was now going up in flames. And the whole idea, you know, he had wanted to keep Tenochtitlan in one piece, he had wanted to win as much as he could without having to fight, but Alvarado clearly had messed it all up. He also was mad that he had lost face 
with Narvaez men. You know, he had promised the royal reception and he had promised them, you know, this is going to be great for us. We have the Mexica under our thumb. There's all this gold available. And instead what they find is this gigantic town getting ready for war. So the new arrivals are quite a bit bummed out. You know, they expected gold everywhere and everything easy. And instead here they have a whole empire bent on revenge. Moctezuma, when he hears that Cortes is back, he wants to see he wants to see him. But Cortes refused to speak with him, since he said that he was mad at the fact that Moctezuma had betrayed him. Um, Cortes replied, supposedly, when Moctezuma asked for a visit, he said, Visit him? Why? The dog doesn't even keep a market open for us, or see that they send us food to it. Captain Velasquez, Cristobal de Olid, Uh, Francisco Lugo and a few others, they told him, Calm yourself, sir. Do not be so angry. Remember how well and honorably the king of this country has treated us? He's a good man. If it had not been for him, we should all of us be dead by now, and they would have eaten us. Remember he has even given us his daughters. Cortes wouldn't have it. Supposedly, according to Bernal Diaz, he replied, Why should I be civil to a dog who was holding secret negotiations with Narvaez, and now, as you can see, doesn't even give us food? I think there's a good chance that Cortes was kind of overestimating Moctezuma's power over his people. I think by now Moctezuma's power was done. He could have said all he wanted about sending food, and I don't think it would have happened, but I don't think Cortes has caught on with that yet. He did decide to, and by he I mean Cortes, he did decide to free Moctezuma's brother, Quitlahuac, uh, hoping that he would then go back among the Mexica, calm them down and convince them to reopen the market so that the Spaniards could be well fed. But this is a decision that Cortes would really grow to regret in the coming days and weeks. Quitlahuac, unlike his brother Moctezuma, actually had a spine, so instead of doing Cortes bidding, he began, as soon as he was free, he began organizing resistance. Cortes tried to send a messenger to Veracruz to get some reinforcement from there, but within minutes of leaving the palace, the messenger is right back saying he had been attacked in the streets and it was just, it was just impossible to get through. The whole town was preparing for war. The whole town was no longer silent and no longer empty. From the watchtowers in the palace, the Spaniards could see thousands of Mexica warriors in battle gear converging toward them. By the time they reached the palace in which the Spaniards were barricaded, the Mexica began throwing so many rocks with their slings that in... Bernal Diaz's description, he said that it looked like the whole sky was raining rocks. Cortes sent Diego de Ordaz with some 400 soldiers to try to break through the Mexica lines, but Ordaz was also attacked in the streets and from the roofs. Many Mexica would just go to the roofs of the various buildings and throw rocks from there. So nine soldiers were quickly killed, and most of Ordaz's men were wounded. 
So some of the Spaniards used cannons and crossbows and muskets to try to help or thus rejoin them in the palace. But you know, a full battle is raging by now. The Mexica set fire to the palace, but the Spaniards managed to turn the fire off. During the fighting, 12 more soldiers are killed. And the fighting gets so in-your-face, hand-to-hand kind of business. This is not just them sniping at each other from afar. That Cortés has his own hand wounded, like somebody with a war club, just club his hand and hurt him. This gives you an idea of how up close and personal the fight became. Despite all this, the Spaniards did manage to keep the Mexica out. That night... The Mexica kept the Spaniards awake by screaming threats at them around the clock. And I can only imagine that Cortés by now missed the silence of a few days earlier. In the words of Bernal Diaz, Though we killed and wounded many of them, they pushed forward over the points of our sword and lances, and closing their ranks, continue to fight as bravely as before. We could not drive them off. And the next day, there they start again. Again, Bernal Diaz. We were struck by the tenacity of their fighting, which was beyond description. Neither cannons, muskets, nor crossbows were of any avail, nor hand-to-hand combat, nor the slaughter of thirty or forty of them every time we charged. They still fought on bravely and with more vigor than before. And in another passage yet by Bernal Diaz, he says, three or four soldiers of our company who had served in Italy swore to God many times that they had never seen such fierce fighting, not even in Christian wars or against the French king's artillery or the great Turk. Nor had they ever seen men so courageous as those Indians at charging with close ranks. So... The Spaniards, despite the fact that they are successful because they are able to hold the palace, they keep losing men. Every day a few more get killed in this hand-to-hand fighting. During the day, the Spaniards would charge out to try to retake some of the houses, but at night the Mexica would take them back, and then they would use the roofs of the houses close to the palace to throw a bunch of stones in the courtyard of the palace from the nearby buildings. So the Spaniards were forced to just walk at the very edges of the courtyard. The only what there's another problem when you're under siege. You start running out of supplies. And you know, you you can last without food a lot longer than you can last without water. And the problem for the Spaniards is that the only water they had access to was from a poor well they had dug up barely enough for so many of them. Cannons were used to shoot from the palace on the assembled Mexica, but while they did kill some, there were just too many Mexica to really make a difference. The Mexica also played some psychological warfare. Every night when the Spaniards were would look out the window to check out what was going on, they would see severed heads jumping up and down as if they were alive. Who knows how the Mexica pulled that off, but in any case, they were clearly creeping out the Spaniards in a big way. On June 26th, Cortes ordered his men to build what I can only describe as a wooden tank. 
you know, like this like tank-like structure made of wood designed to shelter 25 men. The idea is that there will be a few holes in this wooden structure so that they could shoot through it without being killed by Mexica warriors. The Mexica yelled at them, and again, according to Bernal Diaz, they said, not one of us, they shouted, would remain alive that day. They would sacrifice our hearts and blood to their gods, and with our legs and arms they would have enough to glut themselves at their feasts. They would throw our bodies for the tigers, lions, vipers and serpents to gorge on. Again, one of the things that if you are a Spaniard in the palace doesn't contribute to your good morale, keep hearing this stuff. At one point during these days of fighting, the Spaniards decided to charge out of the palace and make a run for the great temple. And the other thing they did is, rather than just taking over some houses that they would lose at night, they started destroying the houses next to the palace so that the Mexica could not then use them to throw rocks into the palace from there. The tank that I describe, and again I use the word in quotation marks, was used to try to reach the pyramid. It kind of worked for a while, but there were so many rocks thrown against this wooden structure that the Mexica destroyed it. You know, the Spaniards managed to arrive to the temple, but by that point the whole tank was destroyed. They got into this brutal fighting on the steps of the pyramid against uh, the Mexica. Some possibly up to 20 Spaniards died here. Diaz tells us that far from leading from the back, Cortes was a big believer in leading from the front. So here's what Diaz has to say about Cortes. He says, Here Cortes showed himself the brave man he was. The battle was fierce and the fighting intense. What a fight it was. It was a memorable sight to see us all streaming with blood and covered with wounds, and some of us were slain. When they get to the temple, they start setting much of it on fire. They grab uh, the priests who are living at the top of the temple and they throw them from the steps. Narvaez men were furious with Cortes because the situation in Tenochtitlan was not really what they had signed up for. But Cortes really had no time to pay attention to them since the fighting was just non-stop. There was hardly any break. Cortes now turned to Moctezuma, say, you know, address your people, you're still the emperor, go on the roof, tell them to stop the attacks, that we will leave the city, but they need to let us go. And Moctezuma by now is just depressed. He didn't know what to make of any of this. He, according to Bernal Diaz, he said, what more does he want from me? Fate has brought me to such a pass because of him that I do not wish to leave or hear his voice again. The other captains try to convince him, said, come on, please do it. And Moctezuma now took a very realistic assessment of the situation. He said, I do not believe that I can do anything towards ending this war because they have already chosen another lord and made up their minds not to let you leave this place alive. I believe, therefore, that all of you will be killed. Eventually they trod him enough that he decided to go up the roof and speak to the Mexica. 
for a moment there, seeing their emperor addressing them, does freeze the Mexica in their tracks. All of them just stop fighting and begin to listen to him. And he starts his regular speech, the, you know, I'm living here of my own will, I'm not a prisoner, uh, there's no reason for war, the Spaniards are going to leave soon. But, you know, the Mexica are long past the point where they want to listen to this stuff. One of them yelled out that Moctezuma was a whore of the Spaniards. This somewhat aggressive Mexica, according to Bernal Diaz, he said, does he think that he can call to us with his woman-like soul to fight for the empire which he has abandoned out of fright? Other Mexica were a little less angry. They kind of told him, look, we're sorry for what happened to you, but I've already chosen your brother, Quitlawak, to take over. So, you know, and plus we promised to the gods that we're going to keep fighting until we're dead. So, basically Moctezuma's goodwill with his people has long passed its expiration date. And so after giving him a chance to make his speech and listen to him, a group of Mexica begin throwing rocks. The man who up until weeks earlier could sentence anyone to death in the empire with a simple gesture of his hand was now getting pelted with rocks by his subjects. They hit him on the head, arms and legs and, as Diaz put it, it seemed as if the sky was raining stones, arrows, darts and sticks. So Moctezuma was wounded, the Spaniard just dragged him back inside to safety. But remember how not so long ago Moctezuma had said that he wished he was dead rather than having to listen to Cortes much longer? Moctezuma has his wish fulfilled now, because by June 30, Moctezuma died. The Spaniards said that he died of his wounds. You know, the rocks that they threw at him had damaged him enough that they managed to keep him alive a little longer, but then he died of his wounds. Mexica sources instead said that the Spaniards killed him because they realized he was no longer useful, so what was the point of keeping him alive? Supposedly sources tell us that Cortes cried when Moctezuma died, but he must have not been that bent out of shape because he didn't really waste too long crying before he ordered all the other Mexica lords who had been captive to be executed. The Mexica responded by sending him an unambiguous message. They said, Now you shall indeed pay for the death of our king and lord and for your insults to our gods. During this lull in the fighting, there were women coming into the plazas with torches, looking for their husbands, you know, in case they had been killed during the day's fighting. And if they found their bodies, they would just cry really loudly in a way that scared the Spaniards. The next day, the Spaniards tried to make a breakthrough through the city to reach the mainland. They quickly realized there was no way to do it. They were running long on powder, food and water. Lots of the Tlaxcalans with them had died in the fighting. So the, the Spaniards tried to bluff and they said to the Mexica, look, let us retire, give us eight days. You know, we'll get ready and in eight days we'll leave the city, okay? 
not because they really believed that Mexica would let them go, it was more to give them the sense that they would need time to leave the city, whereas the Spanish plan was to try to flee during that same night, when perhaps the Mexica guard would be lowered a little bit. So Cortés' plan is to try to escape at midnight of June 30th, going into July 1st which, incidentally, is the same date in which I'm recording this episode. This will be released later in July, but that's, I just realized, it's almost midnight now, and it is exactly that date. This, however, was in 1520. Now, that night is a good one to try to make the escape, because there's super heavy rain is pounding Tenochtitlan, and under cover of darkness, with everybody being quiet, nobody saying a word, the Spaniards, their native allies, they all try to slowly make their way out of the palace and make their escape. They have built these portable wooden bridges to using those gaps in the last remaining causeway that was not, you know, the Mexica had removed big sections from most of the other causeways, but there was one that was still mostly functional to Tacuba. 400 Tlaxcalans and 50 Spanish soldiers carried this big wooden bridge and the idea was to guard it while all the army would use it to get through. Uh, Sandoval and Ordaz had been ordered that if fighting broke out, they would be in the front. They would also, you know, there were another 100 men under Francisco de Saucedo and Francisco de Lugo. They were to rush wherever there would be an attack. Cortés, Alonso de Avila and Dolid would be in the middle, and Alvarado and Velázquez would be in the rear guard. The Mexica are clearly slacking tonight because they had not set up sentries to watch the palace, which you figure is a pretty elementary thing to do, but apparently they had neg- maybe it was just raining too hard or something, but they had neglected to do it. So the Spaniards emerged from their hideout, crossed the deserted city undetected since everybody's barricaded inside, and they were about to cross the lake when a woman who had stepped out of her house to go get water saw them, and screamed, Mexica, come quickly, our enemies are leaving. Now that is night, they are running away. Within seconds after that, a priest from the top of the temple of Huitzilopochtli began screaming, Mexica chiefs, your enemies are leaving, run to your war canoes. Started pounding the drums to sound the alarm, so people jumped out of bed, got their weapons and got in the canoes, ready to chase wherever the Spaniards would be. Some of the Spaniards had managed to get through. Cortés, Sandoval and Dolid had reached Tacuba by now. They left Malincin there with some of the others, but Cortés turned around to help because most of his men were still making their way along the causeway that was now under attack. You know, say what you will about Cortés... He probably lacked in many qualities that make one a decent human being. But one thing he did not lack was bravery. You know, there's no argument that the guy was insanely brave. The Mexica canoes are attacking from everywhere. You know, you have the Spaniards on picture like these long uh, 
road connecting the mainland to Tenochtitlan, the island in the middle. And, you know, canoes are attacking from the left and the right. Uh, Spaniards are, some of them are falling in the water, having fallen from broken bridges. Bernal Diaz said, Although six of my companions were wounded, we cut and hacked our way through. A certain Alonso de Escobar was riding a horse with a lot of gold packed there, but he disappeared and no one saw him again. Uh, most likely he was killed. There were so many people in the water, both Mexica were swimming from the canoes reaching the Spaniards, Spaniards who had fallen from the bridge as a result of the fighting. There were so many people in the water that, as Bernal Diaz says, the channel was soon filled up with dead horses, Indians of both sexes, servants, bundles and boxes. The canal was completely filled with them, and those who came last crossed over only on men, only on bodies. In other words, the carnage was such in this battle that in order to escape, Spaniards and Tlaxcalans had to walk on the bodies of the dead, quite literally. Quite a few Spaniards had stuffed way too much gold in their clothes, trying to carry it away, that when they were thrown off the bridges or they fell off, they drowned because all the gold was weighing them down. Cortés himself fell into the water and was surrounded by a group of Mexica ready to carry him off, but Cristobal de Olea and Antonio de Quiñones came to his rescue. I think I may have mentioned earlier in a previous episode there was a certain Maria de Estrada was one of the lone Spanish women with the expedition who was uh, apparently very skilled with the sword and fought really well in this battle. A couple of Moctezumas, I think one of uh, his sons and one of his daughters were killed during the fighting. Alvarado was wounded, you know, he, he had his horse was killed and you know, when Alvarado got to see Cortés, he told him that Juan Velázquez de León had died on the bridge along with many others, and he himself had escaped only by walking on dead men, horses, and eventually had to use his spear as a... This is actually kind of a funny image, you know, he got trapped on one side of the causeway, then there was a, a spot that was broken where there was only water, and so in order to reach the other side of the bridge... Alvarado used his spear to pull Volt to the other side. Some in the Spanish rearguard realized that while a good chunk of Spaniards had managed to reach the mainland, they were too far back and there was no way they could get through by now because there were just too many Mexicas, so they went back to the palace. But only a day or two later they were all captured and sacrificed. To make matters worse, there were actually a group of Spaniards that, you know, somebody had been in charge to go through the different sections of the palace to wake everybody up, to say, okay, it's time to go, we are leaving now. But apparently somebody had forgotten. So there were actually a group of Spaniards in a different part of the palace who never heard the call that it was time to go. So they never got the message, remained behind, only to be also captured and sacrificed. Can you imagine that one guy who had the job to go tell everybody, hey, we need to go now? You know, it's like you had one job. 
really that's the thing you forgot it seemed like an important one to forget to warn a whole bunch of your comrades so quite a few Spaniards were sacrificed their heads and the heads of the horses were placed on the skull racks by the temple all in all by the time the battle was done it's estimated that probably more than 600 Spaniards were killed plus in some estimates suggest even as high as 865 Spaniards and over a thousand Tlaxcalans so what we're looking at is at least two-thirds of Cortes forces were wiped out in this one-night battle less than 500 Spaniards survived and only 23 horses survived which is kind of a big deal since the Spaniards relied on their cavalry so much by all measures the Mexica had inflicted a crushing defeat on the Spaniards any rational individual would have concluded that the Spanish gamble to take over the Mexica empire had miserably failed you know it was over this was it the, um, this whole event, this battle is what the Spaniards would refer to as uh, La Noche Triste or the Sad Night because clearly things were not working very well for them by the end of tonight you know, two thirds of them died they got kicked out of the city the Mexica are now ready and willing to fight they are no longer being held back by Moctezuma Cortes alone, however, seemed unaffected and never seemed to waver in his determination to take the empire. He was a man possessed. He asked, the one thing he asked when they got to the other side and they realized, okay, well, at least the 500 or so of us were left. We did manage to escape. Good, pat on the back. The one thing he wanted to know, he asked if a certain Martin Lopez was still alive. Martin Lopez was the man who had built the boats who had been burned by the Mexica. And that was the only guy whom Cortes asked about. After finding out that he was wounded but alive, Cortes replied, Well, let's go, for we lack nothing. You know, he had already lost most of his men, his sources, the gold, the most of his allies, and yet he said, We lack nothing. There's clearly a very fine line between genius and insanity. But the man had a plan, and Martin Lopez would play a big important role in it. So upon finding out that Lopez was safe and alive, Cortez was like, okay, great, then that's all we need. The Mexica thought the Spaniards were crushed for good. Many of the people who had humiliated humiliating them daily for the past few months were now dead in the street of Tenochtitlan and in the mud of the lake along with much of the gold the papers from Velasquez and most other Spanish documents for the Mexica this moment meant freedom this night was what they had been waiting for so you know, this was as big of a victory as they could score. This was their chance to get their lives back. I picture them, after the Spaniards, the few surviving Spaniards left, I picture them dancing in the streets, jumping for joy, hugging each other in the rain. The next day, 
everyone went out to collect all the things and their allies had lost during the escape. Weapons, gold, you name it. The Mexica thought that this was the last they saw of the Spaniards. Which is reasonable considering that they just wiped out the biggest part of the whole army, as well as their allies. But the one thing that the Mexica had not taken into account was Cortes' luck and his borderline manic unwillingness to take no for an answer. As long as he drew breath, he would keep trying. And trying again to conquer the Mexica Empire, he will, in the fourth and last episode of this History on Fire series. I want to extend a big thank you to BlueApron.com for choosing to sponsor one episode a month for the rest of the year. In the last few weeks I've been eating Blue Apron meals like they are going out of style. In the past I cooked some of them and can testify to the ease of the process, but lately its uh, producer and editor of History on Fire, Savannah M, was being in charge of the cooking and it has been so good. Every Every single time. I mean, I can't... It's kind of weird to be telling you how good the food I just had is uh, if you don't get to taste it. So just take my word for it or don't take my word for it and try it out for yourself. Every Blue Apron delivery results in me jumping up and down in a less than dignified manner. But I don't care because I like the food that much. For less than $10 per person, per meal, um, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-full recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. They have a very wide variety in their menus and they allow for possibilities to customize it to your dietetic preference. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Big thank you to Skillshare.com. Skillshare is an online learning community with over 15,000 classes in design, business, and many other fields. You can learn everything from how to design logos, to social media marketing, to photography, and many, many, many other topics. Unlimited access to all of these classes are are yours for a very low monthly price. You don't have to pay per class, you just pay a fixed monthly price a rather low one at that, and you can access all of their courses. Beautiful thing about it is that you don't have to buy on faith. Skillshare is giving my listeners a month of unlimited access absolutely free. So you can go to skillshare.com forward slash history to redeem your free month. 
Again, that's skillshare.com forward slash history. And so it really doesn't get any easier than that. You can get a free month, take a look, see if there are enough courses that interest you. If there are, maybe you find out it's a good deal for you. If there aren't, great, you got your free month, maybe you got to check one or two classes, and that's it. No questions asked. So check them out. Um, I think you may find something that you'll be interested in. I sure have my eyes on quite a few courses there. So go check them out at skillshare.com forward slash history. I also want to thank Geek Nation Tours. These guys are they are always putting together tours to historical battlefields. There's one in particular coming up in October that's going to be in Japan. Specific, this one is related to the Battle of Sekigahara that took place in the year 1600. They will... You know, you can read the, the whole description of the tour on their site. I'm going to put the link at historyonfirepodcast.com. It's a great tour. Um, anybody who can carve out the time to do it, I think there's so much that's interesting about it. I strongly recommend it. So go check them out. And of course, the usual Onnit and Datsusara. Onnit with great supplements, workout gear, and all sorts of other goodies. And Datsusara, which is the leading hemp gear. I mean, I just love their stuff. They Anything from uh, martial arts uniforms to travel bags to pretty much anything that you can make with hemp in textiles. They do some great, great things. Um, they have a discount for listeners of this podcast so again I'll put the link uh, dsgear.com but I'll put the link in the episode notes and the biggest thank you of all goes to you the listeners I deeply appreciate your support you guys have been awesome those of you who have uh, written reviews on iTunes thank you so much those of you who have been using the History on Fire Amazon link deep deep thank you for that Uh, those of you who have donated to the podcast and just those of you who listen and enjoy it that's that's also super sweet even if you haven't been able to do anything on a financial level i still deeply appreciate your support so having said all that i wish you a wonderful day and a great summer